good morning. We're back. I'll invite you this morning to open your Bibles up to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 14 this morning. Verse 14 is going to open up the last letter of these seven to the seven churches of Asia. And this one is to the church in Laodicea. And there are some things that I want you to keep in mind that we will discuss later, but I want you to start pondering them, kind of ruminating on them now. I posed this question many weeks ago when we started going through these letters. Why did Jesus pick these specific seven churches to send his letters to? There are over a hundred congregations named in our New Testament. And Jesus could have chosen any of those congregations to send letters to. Why did he only choose seven? And why did he choose these seven? So contemplate on that. Also, what do Paul's letters have to do with the letters to these seven churches? I'll let you think on that. What in the world does Matthew 13 have to do with these seven letters? There are some implications that we'll look at next week, but I want you to read Matthew 13, consider Paul's letters, and we'll reconvene next week, and I'll give you my answers to those questions. Let's go ahead and read through this letter together, and then we'll go back through it in a little more detail. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And there we have the last letter to the church of Laodicea, and it's a condemning letter. This church does not have it going on, and we'll look at some of the things that they get wrong. Jesus says, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. Now, looking at it prophetically, we can infer that the period of major prophetic implication comes between 1900 and whenever this church age wraps up. And I believe that that wrapping up will take place at the rapture. 
Commentators typically refer to this era of the Laodicean-type church as, quote-unquote, the apostate church. Jesus has been left out of this church in favor of entertainment and inspiration. And that is the, the main thing that we see in this era church. Now, let's look at the historical city of Laodicea. This city was situated in the Lycus River Valley, almost directly east of Ephesus, and the city came to be known as Laodicea because in 250 BC, the city was taken by Antiochus II of the Seleucid Empire, and he actually named it after his wife, and her name was Laodice. So it took on this name, Laodicea. Hierapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea are all located in this Lycus River Valley. The Lycus River actually flows through Laodicea, and it conjoins with the Meander River a little bit um, northwest of the city. So they did have a water supply, but as we'll see later, that water was not fit to drink. I also want to note that Josephus and other sources tell us that there was at least a moderate Jewish presence in Laodicea and the other two cities in this river valley. So we do have Jewish influence here. Laodicea finds itself situated in this river valley with these two other prominent cities within walking distance. Um, Hierapolis, we see, is to the north, and Colossae to the southeast. Colossae used to be the most prominent and the most wealthy of the trio, but that city began to be overshadowed by Laodicea when a prominent and well-used road was moved from Colossae to Laodicea, and that diverted much of the traffic and therefore much of the wealth into the city of Laodicea. Uh, Colossae was overshadowed ever since. And since the city was situated at that junction of well-traveled roads. They would lead from Ephesus from the east. A lot of wealth floats through the city of Laodicea. This shows you those roads in Roman time. If you see Laodicea right there underlined in red, it's got the pink star, and it's right there in the crossroads of two major roads. Um, so travelers from the east going to Ephesus, that you see over there to the left, they would pass through Laodicea, and um, it was a good travel stop along the way. Likewise, people coming from Ephesus out to the east would stop there and spend money. So this made Laodicea a prominent commercial center. There's a lot of wealth, and I can't emphasize that point enough. The wealth here is one of the main things that Jesus uh, points out. Now, the way the city was situated, though, it was never militarily defendable. They didn't want to make anyone mad, so they tended to take a neutral stance on many issues. The city's posture was one of compromise from the very start. But Jesus calls them out in this letter for this attitude of compromise. They're disengaged from the gospel while raking in the dough. 
And unfortunately, we see that this is exactly the attitude of the apostate church of today. They're disengaged from the gospel, but they use the facade of Christianity and the name of Christ to make great gain monetarily. These things says the Amen. Now, if you look at Isaiah 65, 16, in the Hebrew, it reads, Bless himself in the God of Amen. You may see the word truth there in your translation. Instead of Amen, the Hebrew root is pronounced Amen. Swear by the God of Amen. So we have this reference in the Old Testament to God as the God of Amen. Now Jesus equates himself with God. These things says the Amen. Jesus is speaking. 2 Corinthians 1.20 reads, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Jesus also makes reference to amen in Revelation 1.6, which we've already looked at, and we saw that this was one of his titles in that passage. The title of the amen carries the connotation of of surety and steadfastness. In John's gospel alone, um, in no other gospels, John uses, in the Greek, the double amen. It's probably translated in your Bible, verily, verily. That is, amen, amen. You can look at John 1, 51 and John 3, 3 for a couple examples of that usage. And in English, this can be read as verily, verily, but the words convey surety. There's a surety connected to the things that Jesus says when he says, Amen, Amen. This contrasts sharply with the Laodiceans' wavering spiritual purpose. They're neither cold nor hot, they're not pointed. They change. Jesus is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. Now, both faithful and true, we see are in relation to Jesus's witness. In other words, he bears a trustworthy and verifiable record. What are three basic things that a reliable witness needs to embody? You know, these are just very basic. The first, a reliable eyewitness should have seen what they attest to. They should have actually witnessed an event. Second, they should be competent to relate what they've seen to others. They should be able to communicate that well. And third, they should actually be willing to communicate that, to communicate what they've seen. And in Jesus we find all of these three components of a reliable witness. And I'll let you flesh that out for yourself. But in Jesus, we find these three components. He is the faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. Now, this word beginning is arche. And it's the same word that's used in Colossians 1.18. That reads, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, 
that's RK, the firstborn from the dead. And some commentators say that John, as he was writing Revelation, was familiar with Paul's letter to the Colossians. They say he had read it, he was familiar with it. He may have been, he may not have been, but it doesn't seem to be referenced anywhere else in Revelation besides this one instance. Now, I know that Jesus was familiar with Paul's letter to the Colossians, Um, and it doesn't strike me as significant whether John knew about it or not, to be quite honest, because Jesus is simply dictating these words to John to write down. So I'm kind of neither here nor there on this issue, Um, but I do think that Jesus probably was referring loosely to the letter of Colossians. Now, we saw that Colossae is right next to Laodicea. Much of the cultural climate in Laodicea and Colossae is going to overlap. And we know this from history, from historians. So we know that a lot of the things that Paul wrote to the Colossians about apply to the church in Laodicea as well. And this argument is strengthened by the fact that Paul instructed the letter to the Colossians to be circulated to the church in Laodicea. Colossians 4.16 reads, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Paul evidently wrote two epistles, sent one to Colossae, one to Laodicea, and asked them to exchange epistles when they were done reading them to their congregation. Now, Archippus was likely the bishop or the pastor of Laodicea at the time Paul wrote Colossians. And it's also possible that he is this angel, quote-unquote, the pastor, that John finds himself addressing in this current letter. Archippus is thought to be the son of Philemon, who Paul also writes to, the book of Philemon. We see Paul encourage Archippus by name in Colossians 4.17 to take heed, that is, beware, discern, or look on the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. It seems that Archippus was needing a little nudge to take his ministry in the right direction. And I can't help but wonder if it's possible that Archippus's lack of diligence in his calling led to the laxity of his flock in Laodicea. I wonder if that could be the case. Certainly something to consider. And since it is well established that Paul's letter to the Colossians is applicable to this church in Laodicea, I want to take a moment and get some background on Colossians itself. It seems that Paul didn't actually found this church in Colossae, or Laodicea, or Hierapolis for that matter, but Paul did spend a great deal of time preaching in Ephesus, about 100 miles from Colossae and Laodicea. And he preached in Ephesus from roughly 53 to 55 AD. During this time, 
people from all over Asia would come to Ephesus to hear Paul teach. Acts 19.10 tells us that Paul taught in the lecture hall of Tyrannus for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. So there was such a volume of people being affected by Paul's teaching in Ephesus that it seems disciples went out from the city and they scattered across Asia and they took the gospel with them. And we think that these churches in these Lycus River Valley cities were planted as a result of that sort of diaspora of believers, new believers. Epaphras was likely one of these men who came from Colossae to hear Paul preach in Ephesus. Being on fire for Christ, Epaphras actually traveled back to his city and planted this church in Colossae. So that's how the Colossian church was planted. And later, Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and he says, for the sake of the gospel. And Epaphras comes to his place of imprisonment to consult about the heresy that's been creeping into this Colossian church. Ostensibly, Paul writes his letter to the Colossians addressing the very issues that Epaphras brought to his attention. With Epaphras not being able to return to Colossae right away, Paul sent his letter, along with his personal letter to Philemon, with Tychicus and Onesimus. And we find this recorded in Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Paul's letter to the Colossians is directed at confronting the heresy described by Epaphras, and he's also trying to encourage this church in their newfound Christian faith. That is the intent of Paul's letter to the Colossians. There's much speculation as to the specific name of the heresy, but the nature of it can be gleaned from Paul's response to it. We see the points that Paul makes in the letter to the Colossians, and we can pick out some defining characteristics of the heresies that were being spread. It seems the best identity of this false teaching is a syncretism of Phrygian folk belief, Jewish mysticism, and an early form of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism didn't fully mature until the mid-2nd century AD, but the roots of it were very much present at this time. So, we have some characteristics that we can pick out in Colossians of this heresy. And I'll remind you, this heresy is also present in Laodicea, okay? So as we go through this list, yes, we're talking about Colossians, the people in Colossae, but we're also talking about and applying these heresies to the people in Laodicea, which Jesus writes our letter this morning to. So some characteristics of this heresy, we'll go through them rather quickly. It's philosophical and empty in nature. Colossians 2.8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. It's based heavily in tradition. This would be a Jewish aspect of it. In verse 8 again, he says, according to the tradition of men. 
elemental spiritual forces underlie the system according to the basic principles of the world. Also in verse 8, it's not Christ-centered. In verse 8 as well, and not according to Christ. And we see some indication that circumcision may have been advocated, um, although that is less certain. And of course, that would be a Jewish thing as well. Food restrictions and Jewish holy days were involved in this heresy. Verse 16 and 17 says, So let no one judge you in food or drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Angel worship was present. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. That's verse 18 in Colossians 2. Ascetic disciplines were encouraged. We see this in verse 20 through 23. The fullness language used by Paul in describing Jesus seems to be juxtaposing the fullness language used by the Gnostics and the Stoics of the time. They sought this fullness, fullness of knowledge mostly, outside of Christ. Paul writes to them, and in Colossians 1.19, 2.9, and 2.10, he counters this point by talking about fullness that is found in Christ. There's no need to keep looking for fulfillment or fullness outside of Christ because he says they are complete in him. So what is the end of all of this? This false teaching, this heresy that's creeping in. The end is, these people were prideful. Verse 18 in Colossians 2 promotes that point. And ultimately, these people were losing connection with Christ. Verse 19 says, not holding fast to the head. The head of the church, that is Christ. Many of these points made in Colossians would absolutely carry over to the Laodiceans as well. And in our letter this morning to the Laodiceans, we can certainly see that the Laodiceans were led into the same pitfalls that Paul describes in Colossians. The Laodiceans were a prideful bunch. We see that in verse 17 of Revelation 3. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They were absolutely prideful. They have also lost connection with him. In verse 20, we see Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And this is a sad picture we have here. Jesus is outside of his own church. They have lost their connection with Jesus. And it may startle us to realize that the Laodicean church of today, the prophetic implication, checks many of these same boxes, many of the same basic lies, heresies, 
are present in today's apostate church that were present in the city of Colossae and Laodicea. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, I know your works. And this time, it's not a good thing. I know your works. And I would imagine that they would take this as Jesus saying, you can't hide your works from me. I know them. I see them all. That you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. I want to point out that Jesus is specifically addressing the pastor, the angel of this church here. The word for cold is sikros, and the word for hot is zestos. Both of these are in their masculine form, which only agrees with the agalos angel of the previous sentence. Um, It does not agree with ecclesia for church. Jesus is addressing the pastor. Jesus is holding this pastor accountable for the condition of his church. That's very sobering uh, for any pastors out there. Jesus holds us accountable for the spiritual temperature of our congregations. Now, certainly the Laodicean people had their own issues uh, with being lukewarm, but we should certainly take heed that we as pastors not contribute to the struggles of our congregation. The Laodiceans would have been all too familiar with lukewarm water. And although they were situated on this Lycus River, the water in the river was, quote, turbid with white mud and nauseous and undrinkable. That's from historical sources. Although they had access to excess water, it didn't do them any good because it wasn't suitable for drinking. And although this water could be treated it still didn't taste good afterwards. So they would have to bring in their water from outside of the city. They were supposed to receive hot water from the hot springs in Hierapolis, of which the city was famous. This water would have been brought in from the north via an aqueduct. But the problem was that once the water reached the city, it had cooled off to a lukewarm temperature. They couldn't receive hot water because it'd cool off by the time it reached the city. And they were supposed to receive cold water from the springs of Colossae from the south. But once that water reached the city, it had warmed up to a lukewarm temperature. And I'm sure this was extremely frustrating to them because nobody likes lukewarm water. And no doubt, Jesus is speaking in this letter to the local context. He says, I could wish you were cold or hot. And I want to clarify that I don't think he's saying that he wishes these Christians were either on fire for him or completely subsided in their desire to serve him. That's not what he's saying at all. 
He's not saying pick either be on fire for me or be completely cooled off for me. He's using these two terms, hot and cold, as two desirable temperatures of water. He's, he's saying, don't be indifferent. Be desirable to me. Be on fire. What do we use hot water for? We shower with it. You know, we can make tea, coffee with it. What do we use cold water for? I love to drink cold water, especially on a hot day. I'll actually take a cold shower every once in a while, too. It helps me wake up in the mornings. So hot and cold are both very useful. Let me ask you this. What do you use lukewarm water for? If I fill up a glass of water, it's from the fridge, it's nice and chilly, I drink about half of it, and then a couple hours later I come back to drink the other half, I'm like, look, I pour it out and I get a new glass of water. I don't even mess with drinking the lukewarm water. It just gets replaced. And I know Summer doesn't like lukewarm coffee. And I was going to talk about a general example, but I'll use this example since it happened this morning. Right before service started, she went over to get her a fresh cup of coffee. She didn't want to drink the coffee that she had made this morning. Nobody likes indifference, lukewarmness. Pick one or the other. Pick cold or hot, and you can make do. The point is, both of these conditions are useful, both cold and hot. They're desirable. And Jesus is telling them in Laodicea to stop with the position of compromise and make a useful and desirable stand for him. That's what he's saying here. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So Christ rejects this indifference with such a passion that he makes this comparison to vomiting them out of his mouth. That is not what you want to hear Christ say. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And this was the famous attitude of the city of Laodicea. We talked a bit last week about the earthquake of 17 AD that devastated Philadelphia and Sardis. It seems that Laodicea came through that one pretty well, but they were later hit hard by another earthquake in 60 AD. And this one caused the city to need extensive repairs. As was common practice, the emperor sent aid to Laodicea to help rebuild their city, reconstruct its infrastructure, but this aid was altogether refused. It was turned down by the people of Laodicea because the attitude was, we're independent. We have enough personal wealth in the city that we don't need imperial efforts to help us restore. We can do this on our own. They turned down aid from the emperor. 
in their own view, they were independently wealthy enough to reconstruct their city on their own. And there are a few examples of public buildings in the city from this period. One is an amphitheater that bears the inscription that would translate to roughly from his own resources. And it was followed by a name. In the case of this amphitheater, it came from the resources of one called Nicostratus. And ostensibly, this Nicostratus paid for this amphitheater to be built out of his own pocket. It was a public place that was donated by this individual. Different projects have been found in the the historical city of Laodicea from different time periods in history. These projects were constructed in different time periods, and they weren't all during reconstruction efforts after a, a tragedy. So what that tells us is that this city was extremely luxurious. You know, they didn't stop with the public building projects once the city was reconstructed. They actually went back and made those things nicer. We have records of them installing oil lines into the bathhouses. Um, They also heated walkways. Like, this is ridiculous. Lavish, decadent. They fancied themselves too wealthy to need anything from the state. And it seems the church in Laodicea adopted this same attitude from their surroundings. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. I will vomit you out of my mouth. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There's no self-realization on their part that they're broken. Jesus has to plainly tell them, Guys, you're broken. You need help. You are not who you think you are. And Jesus presents them with the truth of the matter. They're spiritually wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Jesus is all for delivering hard truths in love. He's all about it, all for it. But unfortunately, too many churches are now very, very accepting of sin. And this is a problem. You listen to some of the sermons out there, and they make you question what you're actually listening to. You know, is this teaching from the Word of God? Is this a motivational speech? Are you trying to motivate me? Are you trying to inspire me? Like, what is actually happening here? Because... By and large, Jesus is left out of the picture, and it's all focused on me and what I can do for myself, the truth within me. As faithful messengers of the gospel, it's not our job to make people comfortable where they are. It's our job to, in love, express truth. Tell people the truth. There is a hunger, especially right now, for truth. There's not much genuine left anymore. 
Christ is the true and faithful witness. Let me ask you this. If the church doesn't deliver truth to your kids, who do we expect will? Who's going to deliver that truth? I promise it's not your school district. They're not delivering truth. It's not your kids' social media platforms. Who is going to deliver truth if it's not the church? And you are the church. This building is not the church. This building could burn down tomorrow, and we would still have a church. People make up the church. It's our job as bearers of the gospel to deliver truth. The church is the light of the world. Light illuminates. We should hate the sin, but love the sinner, just like Christ did. People are hungry for truth. Though this church in Laodicea is broken, Jesus doesn't cast them aside. He's not finished with them, but he gives them a treatment plan. His counsel hits on the exact marks he makes against them. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. This city was known for its gold refineries, the black wool that they made into textiles, and its famous eye salve. Jesus pulls from the local context to give these pieces of counsel. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. Wait a second. Didn't Jesus just say that they were poor? How can he expect them to buy gold from him if they're poor? Isaiah 55.1 gives us some insight. It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here's the thing. Jesus calls all who hunger to come eat the bread that he provides. The only price attached to that bread of life is the buyer's faith. The true price was already paid by Christ on the cross. That was the only price that needed to be paid. After that, we who acquire this bread of life need not pay that price, only to have faith in him. So how do you obtain this gold? By faith. By faith in Christ, we are reborn as co-heirs with Christ. In this world, we can become spiritually rich, wealthier than we could imagine if we have Christ. His father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is wealthier than we could ever imagine here on earth, and the ultimate refiner offers us his gold. And white garments that you may be clothed, 
that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. These white garments would draw a very sharp contrast from the glossy black garments that were fashioned from the famous black wool produced in this area. All three of these Lycus Valley cities, Hierapolis, Glossy, Laodicea, were celebrated for the wool they produced by a certain local breed of sheep, and these sheep were black. They were a glossy raven color. And the white raiment that Jesus counsels them to buy from him stands in contrast to their famous black clothes. And we see white garments mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. In Daniel 7, 9, the Ancient of Days is described as wearing white clothing. Several verses reference white clothes in Revelation. We've previously seen Revelation 3, 4 through 5 in the letter to Sardis, but we also see it in Revelation 4, 4, 6, 11, 7, 9, and 7.13. Also at the very end of the book, in Revelation 19.14. And in each of these cases, the white garments seem to signify righteousness. And specifically, this is the righteousness imputed to the saints by Christ. The white garments signify righteousness. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Laodicea was well known in the first century for its medical school, and especially for the pioneers of ophthalmology that came from it. Ophthalmology, you know, eye medicine. There was a special powder for treating ailments of the eye that came from this region, and Homer. We all know Homer, Iliad and Odyssey, uh, early Greek poet. He referred to this as Phrygian powder, this eye salve. And it came in a powder form, but the user would add a little water to it and make it into a salve. And they would apply it on their eyes. And it was widely accepted as being among the best there was at the time. And this verse, in effect is saying that the great physician is offering his remedy to really open their eyes. And that is the Holy Spirit. If they would only anoint their eyes with his eye salve, they could finally see, instead of relying on what they produce, relying on themselves. If they looked without themselves to Jesus, they would be able to see. Smyrna, we saw, was materially poor. But Jesus said that they were actually rich. He said, I know all these afflictions that you face and that you're poor. And in parentheses, but you are rich. So Smyrna was materially poor, but spiritually rich. This was the church that's known as the persecuted church. This church in Smyrna was brought through the ringer. They were being persecuted at every turn. Now, in Laodicea, we see that the church is rich in material goods. They think that they have need of nothing. 
But Jesus said that they were spiritually poor. The context in which both of these cities and the churches within them find themselves in is very informative to us. During the persecution, during the times when trials came upon the church, they were rich. They knew exactly what they needed, and they came to Jesus to find it. During the time when they thought they were as rich as could be, have need of nothing, they were spiritually destitute. There was nothing that was sharpening them. There was nothing refining them. No troubles, no trials. They got complacent. They became lukewarm. Verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. He says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Hebrews 12.6 says much the same thing. It says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Both verse 19 in our text and Hebrews 12.6 are reminiscent of Proverbs 3.11 and 12. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the Father, the Son, in whom he delights. And Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11, further explains this idea of God chastening us as sons. We'll read through that real quick. It says, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I want to point out also that this word love in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, is phileo. It's not agape which we might come to expect. In that passage in Hebrews 12.6, it is agape. That is a self-sacrificial love. But in our text this morning, it's phileo. It's a fondness. God not only loves you unconditionally, enough to send his son to die for you, but he also likes you. And I think sometimes that can hit us even harder than the agape does. If I think about it, you know, sometimes I get into the mindset, well, of course God loves me because that's kind of his job. But then I realize that he actually likes me too. And that blows me away. He wants to spend time with me. 
He wants to converse with me. He wants me to be closer and closer to him. And we'll see that in verse 20 as well. He wants to come in and dine with us. He actually likes you. Can you imagine that? That is truly remarkable that God not only loves me, but he likes me. And it seems that Jesus is telling this church in verse 19 that he still loves them. He's still fond of them. He definitely just rebuked and chastened them. He hasn't given up on them yet, and he tells them what they can do to be reconciled. He says, therefore, so in light of what I just said to you, be zealous and repent. Fervent repentance is the ticket. They must be rescued from their coffin of complacency. Fervor. Be zealous for me, he says. Show me some kind of sign of life. Wake up from this complacency. Zealous is the Greek word zeluo, and it denotes warmth towards something. We would say a fervor. We're zealous for something. We're fervent for it. Just like we think of fervent as being passionate or, quote, on fire for something, that is this word zealous. Stop being complacent and lukewarm, but be zealous. Have a burning passion for Christ and repent. And these are imperatives. These things must be done. There's no option in these matters. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So Jesus extends this heartfelt invitation to those in the church who would let him in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus is not going to kick your door down and force you to dine with him. He's gentle. He knocks. And he is knocking this morning. I believe Jesus is appealing with the same fervor to the Laodicean church, the apostate church of today, and each of the individuals involved in the apostate church system. He appeals to all of them equally. We often hear this verse quoted in the context of evangelism. You know, Jesus is knocking at the heart of the unbeliever, and that is just someone in the world. And while we can make that connection, sure, the context of the passage is Jesus knocking on the outside of his church. This invitation is in relation to his own church, to individuals in his church. And that makes it all the more sadder. You know, how sad is it that Jesus is having to beg to come in to his own church, of which he is the head, 
or he's supposed to be. Jesus was standing on the outside of his own church when he should be at the center of it. And the Philadelphians got it right. The person and work of Jesus Christ was at the center of everything that they did. But now, in this era of church history, Christ finds himself on the outside of the church looking in. How tragic is that? Unfortunately, this is the state of much of the professing Christian church of today. Jesus is being pushed out in favor of motivational speeches, emotionally charged messages, allegorical interpretations of the text when such an interpretation is not called for, and a hyper-focus on money and wealth. And unfortunately, that describes a large part of the, quote, Christian church today. We see some preachers, I'll use that term loosely, saying that the only battle we really face is that we don't have enough faith. Or the only battle that we face is that we don't have enough money. We don't have a new Mercedes. And that's the only battle that a Christian is facing. If you have enough faith, you can have anything. That's hogwash. The only reason you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. That is just simply not true. Jesus, you see, has effectively been removed from that line of reasoning because it's not up to Jesus to heal anymore. It's up to me because I have to have the faith to make it happen. Jesus is on the outside. You hold all the power in this line of thought, the name it and claim it, or more appropriately, I think, the blab it and grab it community. Holman Hunt painted this scene of Jesus knocking on the door. And at the unveiling of this painting, Everyone was astonished by it. And one of his dear friends said to him, Holman, this is remarkable. Every generation is going to see this painting. But you forgot one thing. He said, there's no handle on the door. How did you miss that? And Hunt replied to him, and he said, no, there is a handle. But the only handle is on the inside of the door. Jesus is on the outside. And you see, you have to be the one to let Jesus into your life. And maybe you hear that gentle knock on the door of your heart. Don't ignore that. Because he won't be knocking forever. There will come a time when he shuts that door and no one can open it. He will not knock forever. So let him in while you can. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Now, you remember the Pharisees in the Gospels got mad at Jesus for dining with tax collectors and sinners. Why was that such a big deal? Why did they get mad at him for doing that? Well, in their culture... 
when you ate with someone, you became one with them. It was thought that the constituents of that bread that you shared became part of both of your bodies. And scientifically, we know that that is actually the case. Those molecules become parts of your body. And look, this isn't fast food that we're talking about. Jesus isn't going to pick you up and drive you through McDonald's and then drop you back off at your house. This is dining. It's This word for dine is to sup. We are supping with Christ. It's where we get the word supper. He'll break bread with you and he'll stay a while and actually enjoy it. Verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Christ is currently seated on his father's throne as he has been since his ascension into heaven. But when he's given his own throne by the father, the overcomer will be there with him. And that is a glorious thing. And because we're short on time this morning, you can track down these references um, this afternoon once we're dismissed. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. Revelation 20, verse 6. Matthew 19, 28. Matthew 20, 23. John 17, verse 22 and verse 24. And 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. I know that was fast and furious, but you can catch it on the tape. These are all relating to the throne of the Father, the throne of Christ, and our role with that throne as overcomers. And these references are just a springboard for you. That is no, by no means all that there is on this, this throne And we see the letter wrapped up in verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This small phrase highlights several of our applications that we can take from it. We've got our personal application, of course. We've got the local application the admonitory application to all churches, and our prophetic application. And next week, I plan to recap all of the letters that we've come through, and I want to specifically highlight their prophetic significance. And we'll go through that together, and it should be an interesting study for us. Now, I have to assign some homework for this week. What do Paul's letters have to do with the letters to these seven churches? I want you to think about it. Go back and reference Paul's letters. I want you to read Matthew 13 at least twice and consider how it could play into these seven churches. I want you to read back through chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation to get a bigger chunk of text. Okay, it's a big idea reading. With the new insight that you've gained over the past several weeks of us going through it, these two chapters should read very comfortably for you. 
And we will come back together next week, look at the prophetic significance. Uh, We'll recap the letters, and we'll talk about some of the odds and ends just to tie it up in a nice little bow. After next week, we will have come through the things which are. Verse 19 of chapter 1, Jesus gave John an outline for this book of Revelation. He said, write the things which were, that is, which you have seen, Write the things which are, that is, the church things, and write the things hereafter, that is, meditata, what comes next. And chapter 4 opens with the words, meditata. After these things, I looked. And we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. So let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer. Thank you.